Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. In late medieval Ireland, three families stood at the very pinnacle of wealth, power, influence, and prominence. Beneath them, in the haphazard social pyramid of feudal nobility, lay families of varying and fluctuating importance. Some of those other noble Irish houses, like the MacDonalds in the northeast, the O'Donnells in the northwest, and the Burks in the west, were consistent and important silver medalists in the category of aristocratic social heft. Other families, like the McGillpatricks, the O'Kennedys, the O'Flaherty's, and the O'Malley's, eddied and flowed in their importance as the centuries rolled on, sometimes up, sometimes down, never out. But for as long as there had been Plantagenets on England's throne and then the Tudors, there had been those three great houses at the top of Ireland's aristocratic pecking order, the Butlers, the Fitzgeralds, and the O'Neills. Of those three, the O'Neills had the oldest aristocratic pedigree, being able to date their dominance over the north of Ireland back nearly a millennium to the Battle of Moira, which took place in AD 637. What the O'Neills were to the north, the House of Butler were, where the south met the east. The hereditary head of the family, the Earl of Ormond, ruled vast estates from the dynasty's citadel of Kilkenny Castle, which loomed like a more functional gormenghast over the town that bore its name and the Passing River. From Kilkenny Castle, generation after generation of the butlers had produced earls, countesses, warriors, architects, knights, pilgrims, diplomats, and some of the greatest patrons of the arts in Irish history. In the east and centre of Ireland, the butlers' old sparring partners, the House of Fitzgerald, who are the focus of today's episode, had held the Earldom of Kildare since the reign of King Edward I and the Barony of Offaly for even longer still, from the time of Richard the Lionheart, who reigned from 1189 to 1199. So great was the Fitzgeralds' influence and their love of politicking that two previous earls of Kildare had been nicknamed the uncrowned kings of Ireland. A collateral branch of the Fitzgerald dynasty had also been granted an earldom of their own in the time of King Edward III, and its heads, the Earl and Countess of Desmond, wielded dominance in the southern part of the southern province of Munster, which left the House of Butler like a kind of irritated medieval version of Steeler's Wheel, with Fitzgeralds to the north of them, Fitzgeralds to the south, and there they were stuck in the middle with their fabulous fortune and penchant for a grudge. But I digress. In the year 1513, the most noble house and blood of Fitzgerald mourned one earl and welcomed a future. The eighth Earl of Kildare, the Great Earl, to his followers and one of the so-called uncrowned kings of Ireland died in 1513. After a lifetime of brilliant political one-upmanship, slick manipulation to his benefit of the Wars of the Roses, bed-hopping bravado, universally remarked upon charisma and dynastic game-playing, the great Earl had led his soldiers to one of the great aristocratic military victories of the 16th century at the Battle of Nocteau in 1504 which he fought while pursuing his quarrel with the rebel Lord Burke, one of the Western lords. After defeating Lord Burke's army, the great Earl and his soldiers had entered the Western Irish city of Galway in triumph. The formerly antagonistic King Henry VII was so delighted with what the great Earl of Kildare had done that he restored him to the position of Lord Deputy, the King's Viceroy and mouthpiece in Ireland, with the right to appoint all major offices of Irish state in the King's name, bar the Chancellorship. The post of Lord Deputy also brought with it quasi-kingly access to confiscated estates and income. Having previously been the dominant force in the centre of Ireland, the Fitzgeralds began to extend their influence northwards. As the king granted them manors in Morne, Carlingford and Greencastle, In return for all this, it was the great Earl's job to defend Ireland from external invasion and internal rebellion. So impressive were the 8th Earl of Kildare's achievements that some suspected him of witchcraft. 
to the extent that the legend of the great earl, the necromancer of Kildare, was sufficiently widespread that an Irish legend cast him as a Hibernian equivalent of King Arthur, claiming that, like Arthur of Camelot, the eighth earl of Kildare never really died, but retired beneath an Irish mountain to sleep with his soldiers until he was called to ride forth again to answer Ireland's call in her hour of need, this time to become a crowned King of Ireland, reigning in post or quasi-mortal glory. Other sources indicate a no less dramatic but certainly more terrestrial ending for the great Earl, who we are told was fatally attacked and killed while watering his horse following a raid on the estates of the O'Carrolls, an aristocratic dynasty who held land near the Fitzgerald's holdings in County Offaly. However, the Eighth Earl's greatness, while a reality, was nonetheless an exaggerated one, and not just in terms of his Arthurian slumber. As the historian Dr. Stephen G. Ellis pointed out in 1985 in his book Tudor Ireland, Crown, Community and the Conflict of Cultures, the idea that the Great Earl of Kildare was in fact Ireland's uncrowned king was quite misleading. There certainly were many client landed families loyal to the Fitzgeralds, such as the McDermott's, the McMahons, the McGuinnesses, the O'Donnells, the O'Farrells, the O'Hanlons, the O'Kellys, and the O'Reillys, all of whom had provided men and arms to support the Great Earl's agenda and his battles. Many of these lesser families and their dependents were, to quote one contemporary, men who coveted more to see a Geraldine to reign and triumph than to see God walk amongst them. But the influence of the Fitzgerald dynasty, the Geraldines as they were also known, was balanced and checked by some of the other great Irish noble houses, chief amongst them, their immediate southern neighbours, the aforementioned House of Butler. And the Fitzgeralds were also kept in check by the crown that they ostensibly served. Although the Fitzgeralds had proved themselves skilled at exploiting to their best advantage the chaos of the English crown as it went into self-inflicted freefall in the final half of the 15th century, the family themselves were keenly aware that much of their practical authority derived from their fealty to the monarchy, and that many in Ireland, particularly those that lived in the area known as the Peel that centred on Dublin and her sister, sister ports excuse me, on the eastern shore, only supported the Fitzgeralds because they had received their mandate to lead local government, first from King Henry VII, who died in 1509, and then from his son Henry VIII, who was the last of the six kings to reign in the great Earl's life. Lifetime. When the great Earl died, as mentioned, four years into Henry VIII's reign, he left behind his English widow, a kinswoman of the late King Henry VII. Their family was also in an immensely strong position through a combination of marriages, military heft, and monarchical service. Their daughter, Lady Eleanor Fitzgerald, was Princess of Carberry by marriage to the McCarthy Patriarch, head of a family who held substantial influence along the southern Irish coastline. Another daughter, Lady Alice Fitzgerald, had married Con O'Neill, head of the previously mentioned Great Northern House, and himself a future Earl of Tyrone. Another, Lady Margaret, had helped forge an alliance with the Butlers by marriage to the fearsome Sir Piers, who was administering the dynasty's estates, while his elderly cousin, Lord Ormond, carried out his duties as Queen Catherine's Lord Chamberlain in England, and the youngest Fitzgerald sister was Baroness Slane, by marriage to Ireland's future Lord High Treasurer. In a system that still relied on military strength as much as on familial connections, the Fitzgeralds were well left and well defended by the great Earl's six surviving adult sons, all of whom had inherited his physical and military skills. Perhaps in prowess would be a more accurate word. The younger five of the six Fitzgerald brothers, James, Oliver, Richard, John and Walter, all took their oaths of fealty as the eldest Gerald, succeeded their father to become the ninth Earl of Kildare. Gerald's English wife Elizabeth, the new Countess of Kildare, gave birth that same year in London to the next in line, who was christened like oh so many people in the Tudor era, Thomas. Keen to impress the family she had married into, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, born Elizabeth Zouche, had acquired fluency in Irish, and she taught her son Thomas to speak and read both languages fluently. The Countess of Kildare came from a well-connected and well-read family. Her great-aunt was Henry VIII's grandmother, Margaret Beaufort, and Lady Kildare had evidently inherited some of her great-aunt Margaret's love of learning. She also taught Thomas to play the harp, 
at which both he and she excelled. Thomas's father, Lord Kildare, had been educated in the schoolroom of Henry VIII's late brother, Prince Arthur. Before he succeeded his father, the great Earl Gerald had been given the use of four manors in Ireland, in the counties of Meath and Kildare, where he had spent a great deal of time with his wife, and thus we can fairly safely assume with young Thomas too. After the great Earl's death, the young family also had access to Maynooth Castle, the family seat. For Thomas Fitzgerald, it was a childhood of wealth, privilege, and from what we can tell, happiness. Thomas's father had an annual income of about £2,000, an astronomical sum, which placed him in the top 10 of the wealthiest Tudor nobles. The only other family in Ireland who could claim a similar income were the butlers. The Fitzgeralds outstripped everybody else in Ireland and nearly everybody in England and Wales. Those who they couldn't outpace financially could be counted on one's fingers. Thomas's father decorated their Irish homes in Renaissance styles, and the Fitzgerald silver collection and their collection of gold plate were legendary. They commissioned paintings from court artists like Hans Holbein the Younger, and they stocked their manor's libraries with books in Irish, Latin, English and French. They were accompanied on their journeys from house to house, estate to estate, by their soldiers and captains. The family's Dublin townhouse, a mansion that was located very near to where the Guinness Brewery now stands, was guarded by soldiers sporting the latest in imported German muskets. And the family also employed cooks, scullions, gardeners, priests, ladies-in-waiting, governesses, harpers, confessors, singers, doctors, and their own judge to hear disputes as they travelled. They were a physically active family, like many nobles at the time, the Fitzgeralds were keen hunters, and even in this context, the family were noted for their interest in sport. They kept large stables and studs, bred some of the best hunting dogs anywhere in the British Isles, and they trained and imported expensive birds of prey. Young Thomas Fitzgerald grew up surrounded by all of this. Everywhere he looked, he saw indicators of his family's importance. Once a year, he watched as his parents received new falcons for hunting from the O'Dwyer family, a landowning family based in Kilnamana, just south of Dublin, who from time immemorial had been obliged to provide the head of the House of Fitzgerald with an annual nest of hunting birds as part of their feudal obligations. Thomas watched as his father handed down heavy fines for those who broke the Geraldine peace by disturbing law and order in the family's estates. Or the little boy observed as one of his uncles administered those fines on his father's behalf. He witnessed his father continue the dynastic tradition of making endowments to the church, such as the founding in 1516 of a collegiate chapel on the family's estates at Maynooth. Young Thomas spent many of his summers in England, where his parents and his mother's relatives were prominent figures. Yet there was a shadow of uncertainty that lengthened throughout Thomas's childhood. When Thomas was only two years old, the Fitzgerald dynasty had faced the first truly serious threat to their authority in years. While his grandfather's violent death had shown that the Fitzgeralds could never relax against the threat of underlings who sought to turn themselves into replacements, it was in 1515 that Thomas's father found himself outmaneuvered in a new way. During another trip to court in England, Lord Kildare found himself questioned by 24-year-old King Henry VIII, who had received a list of complaints from wealthy Dubliners about the Earl of Kildare's power. The Dubliners had grouped together to go through legal channels to present their complaints via a court sponsor, Sir William Darcy, who acted as their spokesperson to the king and who had a personal grudge against Thomas's father after being dismissed by him a year earlier from his post on the Irish Privy Council. There is a tendency to sometimes overly romanticise families like the Fitzgeralds, who are incorporated into a myth of national nostalgia, in which they represent old Ireland, while King Henry and his emerging chief minister, Cardinal Woolsey, represent the face of growing English imperialism, or perhaps more accurately, state centralism. But that is too simplistic. There was some justice in the Dubliners' claims against the Fitzgeralds. Although many of these complaining Dublin families had been in Ireland for over four centuries, because of their ancestry, they were sometimes still called the English or the Old English, or variants thereof. And there was a tendency for these families to be slightly more sympathetic to the butlers than they were to the Fitzgeralds. The Fitzgeralds did not help themselves in that regard by resurrecting certain customs from the old Gaelic nobility. 
In the years to come, this would enable them to be presented as the face of Ireland against the anglicising butlers and the pale. But some of the customs the Fitzgeralds revived in the reign of Henry VIII had been abandoned by previous generations for very good reason. A particularly unpopular one was the Fitzgerald's resurrection of a system whereby local ordinary families were required to shelter and feed the Fitzgerald's armed servants and soldiers whenever the Fitzgeralds moved to the local area. The Plantagenet's discontinuation of that Irish aristocratic custom had been one of their more popular moves in Eastern Ireland. To the charges that he was overstepping the boundaries of his position in Ireland by resurrecting customs such as this, Lord Kildare answered the questions, the fair and the less so, very satisfactorily, cogently rejecting Sir William Darcy's claims that Kildare and his family were responsible for the decay of Ireland, and Lord Kildare thus ultimately managed to retain Henry VIII's favour. 1515 marked another important turning point for little Thomas's family. Their most powerful neighbour, Lord Ormond, died in his 70s without legitimate sons and under the assumption that his earldom of Ormond would pass to his eldest daughter's eldest son, the English diplomat Sir Thomas Boleyn. This was very much what Lord Kildare had assumed would happen too, since he quarrelled with his own brother-in-law, Sir Piers Butler, who on pretty flimsy genealogical grounds put himself forward as a rival heir to his English cousin Thomas Boleyn. As the feud between the Boleyns and Sir Piers intensified, so did the quarrel between Lord Kildare and Sir Piers, whose allies hit upon the idea of weakening Kildare by once again complaining about him to the king. This time, in 1519, Lord Kildare's authority did not survive the plot intact. Henry VIII and his chief minister, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, who was rumoured to hate Lord Kildare and all his blood, removed Kildare, from his position as Lord Deputy of Ireland, and they replaced him with the English aristocrat Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, whom fans of Tudor history will recognise by his later title as the third Duke of Norfolk, which he inherited from his father in 1524. To add insult to injury, the King and the Cardinal made Surrey Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, rather than the old title of Lord Deputy. A Lord Lieutenant had the same authority and rights as a Lord Deputy, the title Kildare had held until it was taken from him. But Lord Lieutenant was generally given only to someone of royal blood or especially esteemed royal favour. It was unquestionably a calculated insult to suggest that the Howards, then only on their second generation in the aristocracy, should be esteemed so much more highly than the Fitzgeralds, who were approaching their tenth. And bear in mind, the title of Duke was higher but it didn't exist in the Irish branch of the aristocracy. So the earls were at that point the highest ranking members. So the antiquity of the Fitzgerald's bloodline by contemporary standards should not have been considered inferior to the Howards. For Lord Kildare, this attack on his family's privileges came at the same time as personal loss. He was mourning his wife who died in 1517 when their son Thomas was about four years old. This, in effect, marked the point at which Thomas Fitzgerald lost both his parents, his father, sorry, his mother to the grave, his father to the court. Before his father went off to England again, where he was feverishly trying to mitigate royal displeasure against the Fitzgerald dynasty, he entrusted Thomas's upbringing to the Fitzgerald's loyal steward, Sir Walter Delahide, and his wife, Lady Janet Delahide. It was a wise move on Lord Kildare's part, because after going to court to face and fight his demotion, father and son would not see each other for three and a half years. We know little of how Thomas passed those years without either of his parents, but his time in the Delahide's care seems to have been as happy as was humanly possible. And this was fortunate for us, we've said. It lasted three and a half years. Thomas's lengthy separation from his father ended thanks to a possible policy shift by Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey, who may have realised they had overplayed their hand in Ireland by denying Kildare's permission, or excuse me, Kildare's request to return home for three and a half years. Despite that rumour that Cardinal Wolsey detested the Fitzgeralds, it's hard to find much evidence of the Cardinal being led by grudges anywhere else in his career, despite the aristocracy slightly breathless and extremely persistent insistence to the contrary. In the early 1520s, the King and the Cardinal blessed a marriage for Lord Kildare with a new wife, 
who firmly advertised the Earl of Kildare's apparent return to royal favour. After lengthy negotiations, Thomas's father was betrothed to Lady Elizabeth Grey, a granddaughter of Henry VIII's other grandmother, Queen Elizabeth Woodville, via her son, the Marquess of Dorset. Like her late royal grandmother, Lady Elizabeth Grey was considered a great beauty, and Lord Kildare was regarded as very handsome. To their mutual physical attraction to one another was added genuine love, which made their marriage an emotionally as well as politically useful development. Lady Elizabeth had been educated in France, where she served as maid of honour, first to Henry VIII's sister Mary, Queen of France, and after Queen Mary's widowhood to her successor, Queen Claude. After returning to England, Lady Elizabeth briefly joined the household of Queen Catherine before she traded being a maid of honour for being Countess of Kildare. The Earl was allowed to return to Ireland with his wife, at which point Thomas was reunited with his father and met his stepmother. Thomas was approaching adolescence when his stepmother gave birth to his first surviving sibling, who was given the traditional dynastic name of Gerald at his christening. After little Gerald, Thomas's tally of siblings grew to a half-dozen. Lady Elizabeth, his first surviving sister, arrived a year after Lord Gerald, followed by a brother, Lord Edward, a year after that, who was then followed in fairly quick succession by three more sisters, the ladies Mary, Anne and Catherine. I should note that it is possible that Thomas had three full siblings born before his mother's death in 1517, but this is unclear, and I should also point out that the traditionally identified sister, Lady Slane, is likely a genealogical mistake by confusing a family tree that in fact shows his aunt, Lady Slane. With his marriage to Henry VIII's kinswoman, Thomas's father seemed to be back in the ascendant, but Thomas learned from his father's example. Now that he was home in Ireland, Lord Kildare could behave more bravely than he had at court. He quickly revived the old Fitzgerald tactic of shoring up their position with not-so-subtle threats of what the Crown could expect if the family were undermined again. Lord Kildare staged intermittent shows of armed strength with his client families and supporters, which he hoped would remind the government that they should not treat him in such a dismissive fashion ever again. To continue the family's policy of good marriages, Thomas himself was wed, aged about 16, to an English heiress, Frances Fortescue, daughter of a wealthy Oxfordshire gentry family. It was a good marriage, but it was not, however, anywhere near as prestigious a marriage as his father's or grandfather's, both of whom had married the kin of kings. So what Thomas Fitzgerald's marriage to Frances shows is that the Fitzgeralds were strong, but they were not as strong as they once had been. As Thomas approached manhood, he also became more of a presence when he returned to the royal court on occasion. There, Thomas's flair for fashion, skill at the harp, and sense of humour won him many admirers. We are told that Thomas was handsome, witty, and that he had a great love of fashion, for which his family's detractors began to mockingly nickname him Silken Thomas. As heir to the Earldom of Kildare, he carried the courtesy title of Lord Offaly. The royal court was initially a very happy place for 18-year-old Silken Thomas, Lord Offaly, especially after his family's quest to re-solidify their position was helped by a surreptitious twist of fate. Having allied himself with the Boleyns against Piers Butler over a decade earlier, Lord Kildare was very well placed when the Boleyns rose to even greater prominence in the late 1520s, after Thomas Boleyn's youngest daughter, Anne, became Henry VIII's fiancée and then his second wife. Silken Thomas was at court in 1533 to celebrate Anne's coronation, first in London, and then when the festivities decamped to the splendour of Hampton Court Palace. By that point, his father's alliance with Thomas Boleyn, who finally won his lawsuit against Piers to become the new Earl of Ormond, had seemingly paid dividend. In 1532, the Fitzgerald's enemies in the Irish administration were either demoted or dismissed, as Kildare was once again appointed as the King's Lord Deputy in Ireland. That December, however, while carrying out his duties in the role, Thomas's father was wounded by gunfire during a siege of a castle in County Offaly. After sustaining that injury, Thomas's father had to rely on his healthier male relatives to carry out many of his orders for him. As a contemporary noted, it was only a matter of time before complications from the gunshot wound claimed the Earl's life. 
there is no hope of his recovery, one wrote. It was at this point, with his father wounded and fading, that Silken Thomas Fitzgerald Lord Offaly really stepped from a position of high society into the limelight of history, at a time when the House of Fitzgerald faced an enemy far more threatening, as they sought, than Cardinal Wolsey had ever been. Henry VIII's new Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell allegedly had the Earl of Kildare in his sights as an overmighty subject, to the extent that Cromwell was secretly compiling a list of further complaints against Kildare, perhaps this time in the hope of ruining him for good. For the Fitzgeralds, there was every reason to be concerned. Cromwell had just been knee-deep in the destruction of a Welsh nobleman, Cerise of Griffith, who had been beheaded for necromancy and treason, and who, like the Fitzgeralds, had been a scion of an old, political, and inconveniently popular regional dynasty. Who tipped the Fitzgeralds off about Cromwell's move against them is unclear, but the supposition that the warning came from the Earl of Ormond, and quite possibly via him from his daughter Queen Anne, seems credible, if by no means certain. If correct, it further undermines the long-standing historical theory that Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell were allies until they became enemies. If anything, even a cursory glance at Irish policy in the 1530s should suggest mutual suspicion between the new Queen Consort and the new Chief Minister, almost from the very beginning of Thomas Cromwell's career at court. Whoever gave him a warning to beware Thomas Cromwell, the ailing Earl of Kildare panicked and ordered a removal of royal weaponry from government stores in Dublin, and then ordered that these seized, some might say stolen weapons, should be transported to his family's fortresses. This was an order which Lord Kildare has to have at least suspected could be construed as treasonous. Henry VIII responded quickly by issuing an order for the Earl of Kildare to return to court at the first opportunity. Despite the Earl's terrible health following the bullet wound, King Henry insisted that he attend court in person to answer the new accusations against him. The Earl was well aware of the risks this time. After all, he'd answered the same summons 15 years earlier, only to then be kept in England for three and a half years. This time, he did not intend to be caught in Henry VIII's trap. As the winter snows pummeled Ireland, Lord Kildare summoned a council to meet at the port of Drogheda, 30 miles north of Dublin. As the Earl's heir, Thomas was invited. The council at Drogheda was Lord Kildare's attempt to set up an interim regime, whereby the family's authority would not disintegrate during his absence in England, however long that might prove to be. In front of the council, he appointed Thomas, by then about 21 years old, to act as his deputy while he was gone. Once again, Lord Kildare urged Thomas to trust above anyone else the advice offered by the faithful Delahides, who had raised him when his father was trapped in England before. Not long after this, father and son parted company at Drogheda. The Earl then travelled south back to Dublin to take the boat to England. Before he left Ireland, the Earl sent a message back to his son warning him again that if the king invited him to court, Thomas must refuse. The king could not be trusted, and neither could Thomas Cromwell. Lord Kildare feared that his son would end up dead or imprisoned, most likely, if he accepted either man's invitation to England. His father's warning seemed particularly apt or prescient when the king announced that he wanted the English knight Sir William Skeffington to replace Kildare as Lord Deputy of Ireland. Skeffington had substantial experience in Irish politics, having run the portfolio and responsibilities there on behalf of Henry VIII's illegitimate son, the Duke of Richmond, who had been given substantial influence and land in Ireland by his royal father. Skeffington had also seen much chaos and instability in his long lifetime, having been 20 when the Wars of the Roses ended. By Tudor standards, Skeffington was an old man by the time he was appointed Lord Deputy, being in his late 60s. Skeffington was not, however, a man to be underestimated, as well Thomas and his father the Earl knew. Nor was he one to trust, at least from their perspective. Skeffington's greatest political enemy was Thomas's English kinsman, Lord Grain, and the two men's feuds was one defined by mutual loathing which extended to Grain's family. 
The king ordered Thomas to appear before the council in Dublin, where he was to publicly accept Skeffington's appointment as Lord Deputy. But perhaps with his father's warnings ringing in his ears and eager to prove himself as his father's deputy, as well as being furious that once again Henry VIII had demoted Thomas's family to replace them with the rival, Silken Thomas, dressed as ever in the height of fashion, went to Dublin with his followers. As he rode through the streets of the city, crowds gather and began to cheer the handsome young lord, calling out his nickname Silken Thomas, which had been made up to mock his sartorial flair, but had been transformed by the adoring crowds into a cry of approval. As Silken Thomas rode through the cheering crowds, he was followed by 1,000 armed supporters. This was the feudal aristocracy, red in tooth and claw, neither cowed nor beaten. Thomas himself was surrounded and guarded by 140 armed and sumptuously dressed attendants, all themselves on horseback and dressed, we are told, by a chronicler in gorgeously embroidered silk. The Fitzgeralds had weapons, the Fitzgeralds had men, the Fitzgeralds had money. That was what Silken Thomas's parade through Dublin told his father's opponents. It was a beautiful June afternoon, and Thomas arrived at St. Mary's Abbey, where the Irish branch of the Privy Council was in session. Walking in with his armed attendants behind him, Thomas committed one of the most audacious and theatrical acts of defiance in the Tudor era. In St. Mary's Abbey, he handed over the sword of state, refused to accept the settlement which had Skeffington installed as his father's superior, and then he publicly denounced King Henry's misgovernment of Ireland. Historians remain divided about what on earth Thomas was hoping to achieve by this act of defiance, and there are two major schools of thought. The first is that Silken Thomas was giving voice at last to a collective frustration in Ireland at Henry VIII's ineffective government of Ireland itself. Particularly among the aristocracy, that frustration had reached boiling point against the Tudor dynasty's policies of centralisation, which diminished the authority of the local nobility in favour of the crown and its bureaucracy. This interpretation of what happened in 1534 became particularly popular with historians a few centuries later, during the sustained period of the fight for Irish independence from Britain, when Silken Thomas's act of defiance was incorporated into a view of Irish history, which claimed the fight for independence went back centuries, and that Thomas's behaviour at Dublin in June 1534 was an early, major and undeniable example of an Irishman saying no to the English government making decisions on behalf of the people of Ireland, then expecting them to fall in line with those decisions. Other historians remain far more sceptical and claim that this interpretation is politics writing history. They counter-argue that the Dublin Defiance of 1534 had nothing whatsoever to do with the concept of national independence, and everything to do with the fact that the Fitzgeralds were miffed at no longer being able to call the shots in Ireland. Like many aristocratic dynasties, they had an extreme aversion to hearing the word no, or the concept of you can't do that. These historians see Silken Thomas's actions in June 1534 as an act of defiance brought on by the fact that his family's earldom was being clipped in its privileges, and neither Thomas nor his father liked that very much. In this version of events, Thomas was trying to use the Fitzgerald's old policies of calculated non-cooperation to panic the government into caving into his family's demands and thus maintain the House of Fitzgerald at the apex of Ireland's social and political hierarchy. With the recent break with the Roman Catholic Church in England and England's deteriorating diplomatic relations with many other European governments, Ireland's loyalty and peace were a high priority which meant that the Fitzgeralds were in a position to make demands of the Crown to give them what they wanted if they didn't want to see distracting trouble break out in Ireland. For two weeks, Thomas waited for messengers to arrive from London with the King's counteroffer. While he waited to hear what King Henry had decided, Thomas and his entourage toured the Pale and the Lordships just beyond it, canvassing the families loyal to the Geraldines to make sure, sure they would stand by Thomas and his father in their quarrel with the king. Then Henry VIII's reply arrived. 
He had imprisoned Thomas's father in the Tower of London, and if Thomas wanted to see him again, he would lay down his arms, accept the political settlement, re-swear fealty to Henry VIII, and accept William Skeffington as the new Lord Deputy. Henry promised to pardon Thomas for his defiance and set his father free to come home to Ireland, but point-blank refused to restore the Earl as Lord Deputy. His father's captivity galvanised Thomas's actions. The young Lord Offaly responded by publicly denouncing Henry VIII as a heretic, lambasting his king's decision to break with the Roman Catholic Church, and suddenly presenting the Fitzgerald's quarrel with the crown as religiously, not selfishly, motivated. It was presented less as a rebellion and more as a crusade for the old religion. Thomas then began to dial up the rhetoric and impact of his rebellion. He won a great deal of support for his cause outside the Pale, the area of crown loyalty in and around Dublin, by announcing that he planned to forcibly banish everyone living in Ireland who was English, conveniently forgetting that he himself had been born in London to an English mother. He grandly reaffirmed his family's loyalty to the Pope. He announced that a new oath of loyalty should be taken not to Henry VIII as hereditary Lord of Ireland, but replacing him in that role with the Habsburg Emperor Charles V. From a diplomatic perspective, Silken Thomas's rhetoric on that point was a stroke of genius. In Europe, his rebellion was suddenly seen as a pious revolt against a schismatic heretic. In Ireland itself, the conservative wing of the clergy rushed to support Silken Thomas's insurrection, encouraging their congregations to do the same. Emperor Charles V delighted with what Silken Thomas had done, promised to send 10,000 imperial soldiers to Ireland with Thomas as head of the Fitzgerald dynasty back in his rightful position. This all sounded wonderful for Thomas, but some historians have actually seen the emperor's offer of military assistance as the honeyed poison in the chalice that ultimately killed the rebellion. By Charles V's estimates, it would take until May 1535 for the Habsburg army to arrive in Ireland, if it arrived at all. Given the vagaries of diplomatic negotiations, the emperor's already overstretched imperial resources, and, of course, the unpredictability of the weather. Furthermore, rather than have any incentive to negotiate with the king's representatives, Silken Thomas had just been given every reason to dig in, keep fighting, until the emperor's soldiers arrived. With Thomas buoyed up by seemingly certain victory thanks to the Habsburgs, the Irish population falling in behind him, many enthusiastically, many others because they were afraid not to, and the Irish branch of the church cheering him on, the Kildare Rebellion swept through the Irish counties. True, the rebels failed to take Dublin Castle despite laying siege to it, but it still had two armies at its disposal, and most of the pale fell into being governed by the rebellion. The Fitzgerald's client families and kin, such as the Desmond Fitzgeralds and the houses of O'Brien and McCarthy, secured the far south and southwest for them. Having had a slightly better relationship in recent years, the Ormond fiefdom, however, drew the line at anything that smacked of treason. Their estates became the only significant bastion of loyalty to the crown. Hardly surprising, considering that the Earl of Ormond was the king's father-in-law. The cities of Waterford and Dublin also managed to hold out. Some of those who had feuded with the Fitzgeralds, however, were so nervous at the rebellion's success that they began to flee to England. Silken Thomas and his family had long since loathed the Archbishop of Dublin, John Allen, a former ally of Cardinal Wolsey. As the rebellion intensified, Archbishop Allen was among those who decided to refugee to England. But his boat was spotted and turned back to Clontarf, where he disembarked and in a panic sought sanctuary at nearby Arton Castle, home of his friend, the Attorney General of Ireland, Thomas St. Lawrence. Silken Thomas arrived at the castle with some soldiers who dragged the Archbishop out by his shirt. He fell on his knees before Silken Thomas begging for mercy. Thomas's supporters claimed later that Silken Thomas said, in Irish, take him away but the two of his soldiers either misunderstood him or misheard him. Others claimed that was a face-saving lie. Instead, they claimed that in a fit of rage, Silken Thomas gave the order to murder the Archbishop. Whatever the truth of those two interpretations, it is undeniable that the Archbishop of Dublin was killed right in front of Silken Thomas by two of his attendants.
for a movement so dependent on clerical support, and one which had garbed itself in the robes of a Catholic crusade, the slaying of an archbishop was a lethally foolish move. It was Silken Thomas's Thomas Beckett moment, and for the first time, support for the rebellion in Ireland began to falter. In some sections of the country, it hemorrhaged. Over in England, Thomas's father had not disappeared into comfortable captivity alone. His wife and Thomas's stepmother, the Countess of Kildare, refused to leave her husband when he was ill. Lady Kildare went into the Tower of London with him, and behind its walls, the sickly Lord Kildare faded as his health consumed him, but not before telling his wife how proud he was of his son's rebellion, that he felt great contentment at his heir's actions. In less paternally confident moments, the ailing Earl briefly gave voice to a worry when he told the Countess that he wished Thomas was just a little older and more experienced in warfare. Then, at the start of September 1534, Thomas received the news that his father had succumbed to his illness while still a prisoner, less than three months after being imprisoned there. The Ninth Earl of Kildare was buried in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula, and Thomas became de jure the 10th Earl of Kildare. On the one hand, there is no doubt whatsoever that this news left Thomas with a great deal of heartache, but it also freed him, and not necessarily in a positive way. His father's death, the Earl of Kildare, the 8th Earl of Kildare's death, sorry, the 9th, 9th Earl of Kildare's death, had robbed Henry VIII of his... See, I just deviated from my script there. I had the old Earl, and then I thought, be more clear, and I fumbled my numbers like a damn fool. The old Earl's death had robbed Henry VIII of his chief negotiation point, which was his living pawn. The new Earl marched on Dublin again, this time with 15,000 Irish soldiers at his back. They came even closer to capturing the capital than ever before, but Crown Loyalist forces eventually pushed the rebels back. Scaffington arrived with just over 2,000 soldiers from England, a smaller number, but all impressively equipped. With them, Skeffington went north from Dublin to Drogheda, where he proclaimed the young Earl of Kildare to be the most arrant traitor that ever was born. In London, the English Parliament stripped Silken Thomas of his titles and lands, proclaiming he had no right to inherit the Kildare earldom being a traitor. The landed classes in the Pale hesitated. Many of them detested the Fitzgeralds, and even those loyal to them worried about what would happen next. Those families who could kept a diplomatic silence, not wanting to rile rebels or defy the crown. As winter drew in, the last before the promised Habsburg army was due to arrive in spring, Silken Thomas withdrew to his family seat at Minuth Castle. It was do or die time. Having come thus far, he could not, he felt, turn back. So he sent his men to begin burning any surrounding district that might provision the Crown or Peel forces. They were the actions of a desperate man, and it cost him even more supporters. Combined with the murder of the Archbishop, the declarations in Drogheda and London that Silken Thomas was a traitor, and the Fitzgeralds to overplay their hand, support for the rebellion faltered and in some places fell away entirely. A truce between the two sides was called for Christmas, which lasted until Twelfth Night, 1535. It was Thomas's first Christmas as Earl of Kildare. Under happier circumstances, he might have been feasting, playing the harp for guests, dancing, listening to his poets and singers, as he, his family and his allies feasted off the Fitzgerald's legendary collection of silverware and gold plate. Instead, Thomas sat in Maynooth Castle as the weather bit outside and doubt grew inside. Two of his uncles, his father's trusted brothers Richard Fitzgerald and James Fitzgerald, abandoned him and went over to Skeffington's side, where they re-swore their oaths of loyalty to King Henry VIII. Two of Thomas's favourite and wisest military commanders left him in a different way. We are told that one contracted leprosy, a biblical punishment, some said, for a side that had slain an archbishop. The other commander allegedly succumbed to the consequences of syphilis, 
Although with the leprosy too, it does all sound convenient that the two captains in the rebellion suddenly died of diseases seen at the time as punishments from God. Whatever the cause of their illnesses and deaths, they were gone. As 1535 dawned, it was rumoured that the young Earl of Kildare could now command no more than 100 cavalry and 300 foot soldiers, probably an exaggeration to his demerit, but not far off the truth in conveying how strained the rebellion had become. When the truce lifted, Thomas's weaknesses became even more apparent, although to his credit, he certainly did not lack for bravery as he marched back out on campaign. But as spring arrived, Skeffington's army had penetrated County Kildare itself. Still on campaign when this happened, Thomas rushed back home to Maynooth Castle, which Skeffington had laid siege to. Silken Thomas arrived too late. Maynooth Castle, the seat of the Fitzgerald dynasty, had surrendered to the crown. And despite that being done on a promise to pardon the men defending it, Skeffington had then ordered the execution of most of the garrison. The surrender, the opening of Maynooth's gates, had been negotiated after the castle's captain betrayed Silken Thomas by accepting a bride from Skeffington. Known mockingly as the pardon of Maynooth, the slaughter of the Maynooth garrison after surrender by Henry VIII's forces were understandably cited for centuries to come as an example of duplicity and cruelty by Henry VIII's regime. At the time, it knocked the last of the stuffing out of the rebellion. Arriving to his family seat, his home occupied smoking and covered with the corpses of his supporters, Silken Thomas at last lost his nerve. The men with him panicked too and abandoned him, most of them fleeing home, seeing now that not even surrender or negotiation could save them from the hangman's noose if they lost another battle. Silken Thomas fled too, first to Lee Castle and then south, where his O'Brien supporters took him in and hit him. He decided to go to the Emperor himself, to beg him to send the promised soldiers as soon as possible. His foster brother, James Delahide, went ahead of him to begin those negotiations. Eight weeks after Maynooth fell, as he was preparing to go to the Emperor, Thomas banished his wife Frances and sent her home to England. Some claim that in his anger and grief, Thomas would have nothing more to do with English blood. Equally possible that Francis's banishment was a kindly ruse and that Thomas sent his wife away under a pretense of disgrace so that if he lost everything, the crown would not punish Francis because they assumed she had been banished by Thomas rather than supporting him. The net was tightening. County Kildare was completely back under crown control. The great northern house of O'Neill had publicly distanced themselves from the rebellion. The Ormond earldom in the possession of Queen Anne's father remained a bastion of crown loyalty, as did their formerly estranged kinsman Piers Butler, whom the Queen had helped promote to the earldom of Ossory, and who came to advertise his loyalty to the King and Queen, was negotiating the Fitzgerald's allies away from them one by one. It was no longer safe for the O'Briens to hide the Silken Earl, and Thomas fled with some supporters and his brother-in-law Brian O'Connor into the woods. When yet another of his captains gave up and went over to Skeffington, Silken Thomas conceded the great gamble had failed. On the 24th of August 1535 he accepted that the Habsburgs were not coming, and so he and Brian O'Connor went to Skeffington's camp to surrender. There, Thomas found his own kinsman, Lord Green, Elizabeth Woodville's grandson, and Skeffington's old enemy. Younger and healthier than Skeffington, Green had replaced him as the army's marshal, and so Silken Thomas surrendered in person to him after a short negotiation. The terms were offered. Silken Thomas would call off the rebellion and publicly resubmit to King Henry's rule in return for pardon for his few remaining supporters, his own life, and to be allowed to return to his family's ancestral estates. Lord Grain agreed to the conditions and the Kildare rebellion was over. A month later, in the third week of September 1535, under guard, Silken Thomas saw England for the first time in two years when he was brought to court in Lord Green's custody, admittedly, but where he was granted the honour of an audience with the King. 
In Ireland, the situation was calming as the rebellion's impact was dismantled after Thomas's public surrender and departure for England. In October, Silken Thomas was arrested and taken to the Tower of London. Henry VIII had never intended to pardon him. It had all been as much of a lie as Skeffington's promise to pardon the garrison at Maynooth. The king felt Lord Grain had acted with ridiculous leniency to Silken Thomas. So Thomas had been lured back to court as his father had before him. This time, the Fitzgerald threat would be extinguished once and for all. Noble prisoners were, by tradition, supposed to be housed in comfort, but the King and Cromwell declined to arrange that for Silken Thomas, who was given inadequate clothing and warmth throughout the winter months. Lord Grain begged the King and the Council to honour the promises he had made to Silken Thomas. They refused. What happened next resembled a cull, in which Thomas was joined in prison by five of his Fitzgerald uncles, including, incredibly, Richard and James, the two uncles who had abandoned him to support the government. Their surname counted for more than their actions, apparently, and the King and Cromwell decided they needed to go too. Matters slowed in the late spring, when the court and government were preoccupied with the downfall of Queen Anne, several of whose co-accused were also imprisoned in the Beecham Tower, where Silken Thomas awaited his fate. The Queen was beheaded on the 19th of May 1536 and buried in the same chapel as Thomas's late father. In July, Parliament condemned Silken Thomas and his five uncles to death without trial. They had not treated Thomas as a nobleman in prison, nor did they let him die that way. Rather than let him walk to his beheading, as was customary for condemned aristocrats, his jailers strapped Silken Thomas onto a wicker hurdle. Then, with five of his uncles, they were dragged on those hurdles by horses from the tower through the crowds to Tyburn, where all six of them, including the two who had supported the crown against Silken Thomas, were publicly hanged like common criminals before being cut down to be beheaded. Thomas was granted one special privilege over his lower-ranking uncles. After he was beheaded, his body was left intact for burial. The corpses of the five dead Fitzgerald uncles were hacked into quarters to be displayed publicly as reminders of their treason, or in the case of Richard and James, their family. Silken Thomas was 24 years old at the time of his execution. The title of Earl of Kildare was eventually able to pass to one of his half-brothers, but by then the once great earldom had been neutered, at the very least clipped. The surviving dynasty of Fitzgeralds made sure to present the dead Silken Thomas as an aberration, who had deviated through youthful arrogance into treason. Subsequent family-commissioned histories even referred to him as a brainless boy, all to imply that what he had done was not reflective of the rest of the Fitzgeralds. Charles V's ambassador to England, Eustace Shapway, who had a chance to be at court when Silken Thomas was, wrote privately that there was much to admire in the rebel Earl of Kildare. He was, Chapuis tells us, a young man of much wit, brave and bold and very popular. In Ireland, chronicles and songs eulogise the dead Earl as the best man in Ireland in his time, saying that there never lived a man of his years whose death was a greater loss in Ireland, both as regards humanity and military leadership than this Thomas. In the 19th and 20th century, Silken Thomas became a hero of Irish nationalism, as mentioned. His actions were seen as the embryo by some of the Irish nationalist cause. His demise and the judicial murder of his five uncles were presented as the passing of an era, the start of the sunset of the old Irish nobility, which would reach its extinction when the O'Neill dynasty fell from grace in the following century. Critics of Irish nationalism, too, focused on Silken Thomas, pointing to his expulsion of anyone of English birth or ancestry as proof that a desire to purge Ireland of anyone with the wrong ancestry had been baked into nationalism from its inception. They pointed to Thomas's hypocrisy in adopting such militantly anti-English rhetoric, despite his English birth, mother and wife. The truth, for what it's worth, or as close as we can get to it, 
is that Silicon Thomas lived so far before the very concept of nationalism as an ideology that it's impossible to see him either as a hero for it or a warning against it. There are two more realistic versions of why Thomas did what he did and what it tells us about the Tudor world. The first is a more critical view. In this version, the Fitzgeralds were too fond of power and too averse to restrictions. They were intent on holding on to their wealth and authority, but they weren't clever enough to negotiate the new political realities of the 16th century in the ways managed by their rivals, the butlers, who flourished into the next century. The hubristic, privileged adult entitlement of the Fitzgeralds saw them react against any attempts to limit their actions in their ancestral heartlands and they overplayed their hand time and again until Henry VIII's government had no choice but to destroy them. Silken Thomas's rebellion was not normal. It went so far beyond the realms where he could credibly be forgiven. He denounced the king as a heretic. He actively sought to transfer Irish sovereignty to the Habsburgs, whom he encouraged to invade. While many of the Tudor regime's actions look like a laughable interpretation of the word justice, if ever there were actions that unambiguously constituted treason by contemporary standards, it was Thomas Fitzgerald's in 1534 and 1535. The Tudors had no choice in the end but to execute him, and if, as can be argued, the King and Cromwell behaved with fairly unappealing pettiness in their treatment of Thomas Fitzgerald compared to other condemned English traitors of the same generation. There was no dragging through the streets and hurdles for Thomas Moore, George Boleyn, or John Fisher then nonetheless their actions were, by 16th century standards, justified and certainly understandable. The Fitzgeralds couldn't or wouldn't accept a new political reality. They were prepared to go to wild lengths to keep themselves at the top of Ireland's pecking order, and their greatest skill was in disguising their patently self-serving actions as a moral crusade. They showed that early on, when they reinstituted old Gaelic aristocratic practices like quartering their troops at ordinary people's expense. This was passed off then and later as the Fitzgeralds wonderfully returning to the customs of old Ireland, when in fact those customs had been retired because even by medieval standards, they were a gross extension of aristocratic privilege at the literal expense of everybody else. Silken Thomas expanded that policy by suddenly rebranding his rage at his father's demotion into a Catholic crusade that preached loyalty to the Pope and the Habsburg Empire, harnessing the recent break with Rome as a camouflage for the re-establishment of Fitzgerald's supremacy in Ireland. The other, more favourable interpretation runs, that the Fitzgeralds were victims of circumstance. Yes, they behaved in ways which were grand and self-serving, as did many families in the early modern period. But the Fitzgeralds did not change. The country, or more specifically, the king did. Unlike his father, Henry VIII had misruled Ireland and did so for a quarter of a century by the time the Fitzgeralds erupted into rebellion against him. Henry VIII sent men to replace them like the Earl of Surrey, who knew absolutely nothing about Irish politics. Henry had completely mishandled the Irish nobility throughout his reign and refused to listen to advice from the Archbishopric of Dublin and the Irish Privy Council that he adopt different policies. Henry VIII's feckless mismanagement of the Ormond earldom after the seventh earl's death in 1515 when everyone with half a brain could see the title was supposed to go to Thomas Boleyn but that something would have to be done to keep his estranged cousin Piers Butler on side is staggering. How did it take 14 years to legally resolve the Ormond dispute given the earldom's importance in Ireland? It sent a very clear message on how Henry VIII saw the Hibernian nobility the Fitzgeralds were also victims of Henry's aggressive, ill-thought-through Irish aristocratic policy. Looked at in this light, the real surprise with the rebellion is not that it happened, but that it took so long for it to erupt. The fall of the Fitzgeralds in 1536 to 1537 bears all the stench of the moral corruption and legal acrobatics in which Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell specialised. They'd already done it in Wales with Sir Rhys ab Griffith, demolishing his established family and replacing them with rivals. 
Now, it should be pointed out, I think, that this policy predates Cromwell. But one of his early major political moments was Griffith's trial and execution in 1531. To understand that it was Henry and Cromwell who are to blame for the chaos, this version of events argues that one allegedly need look no farther than the fact that they executed two of their own supporters alongside Silken Thomas because they happened to be his uncles. And to those who, when debating the fall of Queen Anne Boleyn around the same time, argue that there's no way that the Crown would have sent totally innocent men to their deaths just because they happened to be in the way, the counter-argument is to stop looking solely at English history and to see instead the totality of Tudor policy. They did it with the Fitzgeralds, they did it with the Griffiths. If they could do it to them, why could they not do it to somebody called Brereton or Weston? The truth, perhaps, lies somewhere between those two views, although sometimes I feel that's a cop-out to say it's both, it's neither. It's possible to hold that the fall of the Fitzgeralds was entirely or predominantly of their own making, or to see their tragedy as one commissioned by Henry VIII and authored by Thomas Cromwell. I'm still not entirely sure what I think of it. The evidence pings in other directions. But I do believe the Fitzgerald's downfall is one of Tudor and Irish history's most understudied and revealing political and social crises. In our next episode of Single Malt History, I'll be looking at a daring plot launched by an Empress of Austria in the darkest days of the First World War. I've been Gareth Russell. Thank you and take care. Mm-hmm.